Good evening to each of you. God bless you for being here. I had promised the children I would have a little class or lesson for them, so I guess you all can gather up in this corner. And if you can't fit on that bench, you ladies don't have to move. We'll just, they can sit on the floor or whatever it takes there. Do. Hmm? 
I don't think so. I think when Harry sees or smells this trap, especially since I've touched it, he's going to run away. He's not interested in a mouse trap. I mean, maybe a mouse is more curious than I think they are. Maybe they go sniff around an empty mouse trap. I don't know, but I doubt it. I think if they smell the smell of man and all that, they're running away. You know what? Nobody wants to get killed on purpose, right? So the mouse is not interested in it. And if I had a mouse in my house and I had this trap, I would never just set it just like it is right there and expect I'm going to get a mouse in it. If I want to catch the mouse, what do I have to do? I thank you that you've got a chance. Maybe I'll ask someone else. Yeah, I don't like set them either. But um, what else should I do? Not just set it. How am I going to get the mouse in there? Somebody else yet? What? Well, that might help. Get it close to it. What else am I going to have to do? Put some cheese. <laughs> Peanut butter work too, right? But what I got tonight is cheese. So now I'm going to catch his mouse. We've got to put something in the trap that the mouse wants. Now, I suppose it's not wrong for a mouse to eat cheese, but he's not supposed to be stealing cheese out of a trap. We're going to say the mouse to come get cheese out of this trap is like us being tempted to do something that's wrong. Now, we already decided that the mouse wouldn't come and get in the trap. It was just for the trap. But now, he has another reason to get close to this trap, right? He smells the cheese. He smells the cheese. And he wants it real bad. All right. I think I'm going to have to do this up here. That should make the water good. All right. So there's two things we've done. We have... Uh, in case you all don't know it, I don't like this part of it. <laughs> uh, we have put something in that trap that the mouse wants really bad, and we've set the trap. Now, I will tell you something. I'm not a mice ex mouse expert, but I really believe that when Harry comes along, about here... He is really tore up inside. In other words, he's mixed up in his feelings. On one hand, he smells this man. He says, something scary around here. And he may even run back a few steps. But then he says, but I smell cheese. <laughs> Maybe I at least can go closer and see. That goes up there. Mm. Maybe I should just run away. I haven't had cheese for a long time. And so he is not sure. Did you ever did you ever act like that inside? You said, you know, you know there's something you shouldn't do, but you really like to though. And I'm not sure. Some of us older ones we might say, God, God help me not to do the wrong thing. But then we think about what we want to do and we halt between two opinions. Will we, won't we? What would be the smart thing for Harry to do? Run away as fast as he can. And you know what? If he'd run away, he'd be a live mouse tomorrow. Right? Very likely. But if he don't run away, what's going to happen to him? Yeah, he's going to die. Because what he's going to do is... And you know, sometimes... Sometimes mice like Harry, they actually get the cheese, and they get away. And then they really think they can steal cheese out of the trap. But sooner or later, Harry gets so excited about the cheese that it gets him. Now I have one really important question for you. You, you, you really think about this. Is the cheese worth it? 
Is the cheese worth it? No, you know, he didn't even get to really taste it. Did he? It just killed him. He's dead. I don't know. Let's see, this don't work quite right. His eyes are still open. He's dead. He's good and dead. He ain't getting out of here. And so I guess I'd like, you'll probably forget this within a year or two, but I, uh, and you'll probably forget it tomorrow when you're in school and maybe you do something you should. I hope that won't happen to you. But I'd like you to try to remember that when our desire is a bad desire, God gives us good desires, but when it's a bad desire to do the wrong thing, it is never worth it. The price you pay for doing the wrong thing eventually is this. Thank God not every bad thing we do in life kills us right straight out. But if you follow on that path long enough, that's what happens. And so doing the wrong thing just because we want to is never worth it. Okay? Can you agree with that? It's not worth it. If you're going to end up in a trap and lose your life, it's not worth it. Sometimes God's mercy is kind of severe. Um, I was in Canada about half a year ago, and I visited a man who's a little bit older than me. I think he's maybe about Brother Nathan's age. But that man, many years ago, when he was just 17 years old, was racing another boy in a car. And God was merciful. He didn't take his life, but he ended up a paralegic, paralyzed from here down, 17 years old. And God was merciful because, because of that he became a Christian. And God didn't take his life when he wasn't a Christian. So God was so good to him. But you know, it was never worth it to him to fall into the trap. And there's a lot of things in life like that. Tragedies that happen because of sin. Never worth it. You want to stand up? We'll pray. Can we do that? Stand up. We'll pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for these children. Thank you for their families. And thank you that they are being taught right from wrong. And, oh, God, there's no doubt about it that sometimes they'll choose the wrong. But as they grow and learn about life, I pray that you will teach them that doing the wrong is not worth it. And you'll help them decide to run away. Lord, your word tells us to run away. Flee lust. Flee other things that lead us down wrong roads. And so bless them, Lord. We commit each of these children to you. That they'll be found your children in eternity. We thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Now you go back to your parents. I meant to pray again for the message. Maybe we just bow our heads and do that briefly. Lord God, just now I ask you to open our minds and hearts further and to teach us your lesson to us from your word tonight. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Well, last night I was talking about life in Jesus Christ. And uh, tonight, kind of following on that theme, I want to think of a Christ-like lifestyle. Uh, Christian, you know, what does Christian look like in South Boston in 2017? What does a Christ-like lifestyle? You know, Jesus, as we said last night, was a man who always pleased his father. And... One thing that's true about Jesus that's never been true of another human being, Jesus had the Holy Spirit without measure. In other words, God did not limit the spiritual power in Jesus' life. And the reason that was true is because he never did anything to limit the power of the Spirit in his life. So um, the Bible says, For he whom God has sent speaketh the words of God, for God giveth not the spirit by measure unto him. 
it, it says it in the reverse order, but it means that God did not limit the Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. Now, I don't know, when we start talking about themes of the Holy Spirit, do you have a little ripple of uneasiness goes through you? You know, you, you're not too sure whether we're going to start talking about rolling down the aisle or, or speaking special tongues or shouting hallelujah real loud. Or I have a question for you. Was Jesus a sensible man or was he an oddball? Was he half crazy or was he pure goods? See, Jesus was the most spirit-filled man there ever was, and I don't even know if he ever spoke tongues. The Bible doesn't say he did. I'm not picking on tongues, but, you know, a lot of people say, oh, if you have the Holy Spirit, you've got to speak in tongues. Well, Jesus had the Spirit without measure, and he didn't. And, uh, yeah, there was, there was signs in Jesus' life, and some of them had to do with him being, with him proving he was the Son of God, but Jesus did miracles to help people and miracles to show who he was, but he didn't jump off cliffs like the devil wanted him to. He didn't, I don't think he rolled down the mountain. Uh, you know, he acted sensible. He was a servant of God to the people for good. He went about doing good. And uh, as I said last night from 1 John 2, 6, the scripture says, he that saith he abideth in him ought himself also so to walk, even as he walked. <clears throat> and I was thinking about the difference between someone who's like Jesus and someone who is not a Christian and does not have Jesus. What is, what is the essential difference between being Christ-like and being manlike without Christ. And I think we could reduce it to two words. We could say love. And when we say love, I want us to understand that I'm talking about the agape, divine type love. And selfishness. I don't know how many of you would say that the opposite of love is hatred, but that's not true. The opposite of love is selfishness. Love sacrifices and gives, and the opposite of that is for me and mine and what I want. And it actually ignores others and uh, cares less about them, and that's actually the opposite of love. What happens to you happens to you, so what? I'm for me. Um, and that's, that's man without God. And we are, we're chock full of it in the United States of America. You get your rights, you get your piece of the pie, you take care of you. You, you deserve that, to look out for yourself. And God says, give yourself to me and others. And that's sort of the difference. And we have an example of that. I won't take time to turn to it tonight, but uh, if you remember that man who his fields yielded a big crop, and he said, what am I going to do with all this? I know what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger. And, and then I'll say to my soul, and you, you can about see him wrapping his arms up like I am right now and say, I'm going to take care of me from now on. I'm going to have plenty to eat. I'm going to have plenty of money. I'm going to lay back and feast and have a good time. And me and myself are going to be happy for a long time. I've got a lot of goods. You know what God said? God said, you're a fool. You're going to die tonight, and then who's going to have all this stuff? And then it says this, such is a man, this is my words, but the scripture indicates this, such is a man who's rich towards himself, but not toward God. His life is wrapped up in self, not God. In contrast, Jesus went about doing good. <coughs> And if you remember the case when he was there in Samaria with the Samaritan woman and his disciples came back from having went to town and bought food and they say to Jesus, eat. You know, we got, we're here with the food now. Got back from McDonald's, you know, eat. And he said, no, nah, it's all right. I don't really care to right now. He said, what's the matter? Someone else gave you something to eat? And they said, my meat is to do the will of God who sent me. And to finish his work. 
He was more interested in meeting the needs of that poor lady who was lost in sin than eating a hamburger right then. Now, when I think of the general evangelical church in America, the Protestants and, and then the Mennonites, and of course we have a great range of Mennonites, but even including us that consider ourselves conservative Mennonites, you know, I, I believe that everyone who calls themselves Christians, now you can't talk about the atheists, the agnostics, and the Hindus, and the Mormons, and all them, but even amongst evangelical Christians, uh, all of us appreciate the concept of salvation. You know, through Jesus Christ, we don't need to experience hell. We get to go to heaven. And that's, everyone would agree on that that calls themselves Christians. We're glad that we have salvation through Jesus Christ. And that's what people sing about and they write about and they rejoice in. <coughs> we ought to be glad about that. And there's pretty, uh, there's pretty general joy and appreciation, too, of the fact that we can pray in Jesus' name. And we have access to the Heavenly Father through Jesus. And we appreciate that, that through Jesus we can come to God. We come to the throne of grace. And people love the idea that there's something to lean on. There's, there's hope. There's a source of help. There's a present help in time of need. And again, I would say that's true. That is a tremendous blessing. That you're, you're facing something and you say, oh God, in Jesus' name. And you're right there. <laughs> and that's precious. But tonight, one of the great dividers between those who are real and full and useful in the kingdom and those that aren't are those who appreciate his lifestyle, appreciate his character. It's not just salvation that I don't go to hell. It's not just that God answers my prayers. But I want to be like him. I want to follow him. I want to be found in him. And, and I know that if that's what I'm going to be, then I must study and set myself to follow him and live like he would. Now, I don't know about you, but that takes some thinking on my side of things. Uh, if Jesus were an American tonight living in South Boston, what would that flesh out to be? Now, I met some of you in town today. I was at the bakery and different stores. And, and so we were out there in the commercial world. We were out in the world where probably some of them are atheists, some of them are agnostics, some of them are other religions, some of them are probably evangelicals. And we were out there amongst them today. Did they meet Jesus? Yeah. Them people that walked in that bakery, I saw quite a few going in there. Did they meet up with Jesus Christ today? I met a bunch of them. Did they meet Jesus when they met me? I mean, we're members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. And listen, uh, let me tell you something. You don't have to be healing a leper for someone to meet Jesus. But all of us emit from our life an attitude, a witness, a presence and I'm not saying that everyone that meets us has to be able to instantaneously be able to tell that we're Christians. And yet, maybe more than, than, than is real sometimes, they should be able to tell that they met up with someone different. They met up with part of the body of Christ. And I'll tell you why that's going to be true if it is true. It's because you and I have embraced that. In, in our faith, we have embraced the importance of being like Jesus Christ. We have pursued it. We've decided to pursue it. I can't say that I always love that. There are times when I love a softer life, an easier life, a less sacrificial life, a less committed life. Sometimes I like the cheese. And, and so I come to this crucial question for us tonight. 
excuse me, do we love discipleship? Do I love the concept of that little song, that little chorus that says, to be like Jesus, to be like Jesus. All I ask is to be like him. All through life's journey from earth to glory, all I ask is to be like him. Simple little chorus, but ooh, that's tough. Do I love discipleship? You know, when we talk about being a disciple of Jesus Christ, do we remember that in the end, that meant he gave his life for his Father's will? And it wasn't an easy life giving. It was the cruel death of the cross. And I want to remind you tonight, I need to remind myself, that there are people who are dying those kinds of deaths for Jesus these days in our world today. We just have it so easy in America yet that we don't think about it. But there are people being tortured for their faith, and there are people who are not giving up and are actually laying down their life for Jesus. So I'm following in the footsteps of he who was willing to suffer, willing to sacrifice, willing to die. Now, There has to be a way to do that in South Boston, right? I don't know if there's any ISIL people running around here in this county that have been holding a sword to your head recently and saying, are you you a Christian, are you a Muslim, or any other way that that Christians are dying today in the world? (coughs) Probably it's not that dangerous for you to live as a Christian here in South Boston yet these days. But it does mean something for us, right? Even in free, prosperous America, living a Christ-like life means something for me and for you. And so I was asking myself as I prepared this message, what does it look like? You see, you and I don't have the exact same ministry Jesus had. We're not the Son of God doing miracles to prove that We are the son of God. We don't have a three-year ministry of establishing the gospel. We probably won't do the same miracles, the exact same activities. And I'm glad that the Bible fleshes out not only how Jesus lived a life for God, but how married people did, how business people did, how, you know, disciples and first-generation Christians did. And we find that in the New Testament it is broader than just how Jesus lived his life. But the, the principles and the values that he had was found in those who followed him, even from Bible times. And I think right at the core of it is that, that people who are like Jesus live in the presence of God. I say, what do you mean by that? Don't we all live in God's presence? Yes, if you're referring to it from God's side. I believe there are people who call themselves Christians who walked through this day and basically didn't even think of God. And they sure didn't take him very much into account. They went about their pleasures or their business and they were all caught up in what they were doing. Maybe they didn't even pray or if they prayed it was one of those uh, five centers as they went out the door or whatever. And... uh, grabbed a bread of life verse or something and they were gone about their life and the thought of God of walking in his presence of realizing that as I live my life the Holy Spirit who has come and joined himself with my spirit has an opinion about everything I do as I think my thoughts and I make my decisions and I walk my life each thing I'm thinking saying, singing reading, looking at pleases or displeases the spirit within me. Do you believe that tonight? Do you believe that you either bring joy and honor to God or else you bring grief and dishonor to God? And that can change in the same day. We can be honoring God in some way. Maybe we're doing well in the morning. We read our Bibles. We prayed. We were kind to the family. 
And then something really trips us up in the afternoon and we do something that God is absolutely not in agreement with. At that moment, we grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Now, if you're walking with God in victory, you know what will happen right then. You will come under a great sense of condemnation. You will know you've crossed the line and you've done wrong and God is angered with your actions. And then you have a choice. You can defend yourself and go on, or you can repent and confess and and get back right with God. But God-focused, if we really want to live like Christ, I mean, it's not hard for you to understand, is it, that Jesus was God-focused. Jesus was praying. Jesus was interested in his Father's house. Jesus was involved in honoring his Father. He was very Father-focused. So much so, that, as I said already in these meetings, that, that, you know, he said, I say the things that God gives me to say, and I do the things that God gives me to do. That was his focus. And so I think Christians who want to be like Jesus do read their Bibles and pray each day. I need to revive that in my heart. They acknowledge God. What does that verse mean in the Old Testament says, in all thy ways acknowledge him? It means as you go through life-making decisions, you give God a vote in the matter. And he doesn't always write his answer on the wall. He doesn't have to. A sincere Christian can live according to the peace in their heart. But he gives God a chance to throw a check in his heart. He says, God, should I do this? Is this a good choice? He doesn't wait to hear an audible voice from heaven. But as he goes through life opening his heart up to God, God has an opportunity to speak to that or just to give a sense of peace and and allow the person to go on. Lives that first commandment of loving God with all the heart, soul, mind, and strength. Commitment to do his will. Give him all the keys of life. And uh, I, don't, I don't believe that God is out to make life as miserable and hard as he possibly can for us. I don't, God's not trying to run us through the mill, but I do believe that you and I need to be willing to say, there is no room in my heart, there's no key to my activities, there's no treasure I hold that God can't have if he asks for it. I would indeed go to Africa. <laughs> There's a little song that I don't like. Don't send me to Africa. That's a, that's a joke. Uh, you better hope God just don't send you to visit your neighbor if you got that kind of heart. But, uh, but what if he did ask you to go to Africa? What You got your prosperous little business. What if God would say close it and go afar? What if God asked you to change your job? What if God told you the person you're thinking about for life's companion? And I hate to get on that one because young people worry about it too much already sometimes. But, but he, can change, he can change direction on those kind of things. What if God asks you to give up near and dear to you? And sometimes it happens. <coughs> but, uh, you know, I think those who truly surrender that spend less, less time worrying about it than those that don't. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a little like living within the discipline of the church. Those who have given it up and says, I'm going to support this church with everything I have, they cease to worry about the standard of discipline. Did you know that? They get in the middle of the practice, they enjoy the Lord, they enjoy the church, and they're not worried about the written details because they're full within it. It doesn't matter. But those poor people who are always worried about where the line is because they want as much freedom as they can, they, some of them people are miserable, I'm going to tell you. And you know, just get over it. <laughs> get in the middle of it and enjoy your Christian life. And that's the way it is with surrender to God. Give it all up. He'll give most of it back. You know, he'll, he'll be gracious to you. And if he does send you to Africa, he'll send you with all the grace and power and strength you ever needed to get it done. You don't have to worry about it. You'll discover that Africa was the most enjoyable place you could ever be. I've never been to Africa. But I've never regretted giving in to God when God said do something. I have regretted holding back. Have you? 
You should, if you got an age at all, you should have learned this lesson. When you do things God's way, there's blessing. And when you hold out on God, it just isn't worth it. I believe that those who want to be like Christ love God's work. They love his kingdom. Uh, can I say something with love? And I hope you all don't throw me out too fast. Uh, those who want to be like Jesus don't grumble about teaching Sunday school or Bible school or school or missions or jail work or hospital work. Uh, the people who are like Jesus are saying, give me a place, give me a work, give me a, give me a corner to be involved in. I want to do something for the kingdom of God. Oh, you're talking to the wrong person if you want to come talk to me about 20% of the people do 80% of the work. I hear those kind of comments in my circle sometimes. It's, oh, my, so, you know, small portion of the people do almost all the church work. And then I say, well, then a small portion of the people get almost all the blessing. And they ought to be ashamed of themselves for grumbling when they have an opportunity to serve the Lord. Do you think Jesus grumbled? Did you see him when he had crowds of people around him, 8 o'clock at night, and he hadn't eaten all day long? Do you find Jesus Christ said, oh my, I do almost all the work around here. So please get over it and just enjoy working for the Lord. Because, you know, people want to be like Jesus. They want to see the kingdom of God built. They have a compassion for the souls of men. They look out on the fields that are white in the harvest and shed tears. They have a concern that God send forth labors into the field. They are willing to invest so that their treasures are in heaven and not here on the earth. I believe if you're in South Boston and you want to be like Jesus, you're going to be a pilgrim and a stranger. And I don't think we should spend a lot of time judging one another on this, but I think we ought to be concerned about it for ourselves. If, if I'm a pilgrim and a stranger, if this is not my eternal home, if my treasures are being laid up in heaven and not down here where moth and rusteth corrupt, then I'm going to have to say no to materialism. Jesus never rode on a prime rate stallion or in the best of chariots he could have and he didn't he chose to live a simple sacrificial life and in the scripture he said take heed and beware of covetousness for a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesses I know there are churches that try to regulate this. They try to say how much you may spend for a car, how many cattle you may have, and a lot of ways try to seek to contain the curse of materialism. And uh, I'm not so old, but I think I've learned in my life that the only real answer to materialism is to love God and his work. You have to work it out from that side. Get involved in serving the Lord, and then the rest of the priorities of life kind of shake out. So we say no to materialism if we're a follower of Jesus Christ. We say no to hedonism. That's a big word, but hedonism means the cult of pleasure. I live for pleasure. I live for fun. Uh, we Mennonites get a little plagued with this one sometimes. Uh, I don't think I don't think all recreation and all fun is bad, but I think when our churches and our youth groups and our family gatherings circle endlessly around fun and pleasure instead of programs that promote the kingdom of God, we've got a problem. Yeah, I guess you know Jesus never visited the Colosseum. 
Jesus, I don't know what your most famous sports group down here is in South Boston, but whatever it is, Jesus wouldn't have went to the game. He wouldn't have paid $50 to eat $3 hot dogs in some stadium and yell himself hoarse with some idol, about some idols running down around there that can only throw a ball just a little bit further than I can. And that makes them worth $20 million a year or something. Do you know if God would all of a sudden create some people 15 feet high who could throw a ball 200 miles an hour, those guys wouldn't be worth a dime? You know, all, the only reason they're worshipped is because they can do a little bit better than Josh there. That's the only reason they're worshipped. And, uh, you know, they get as old as me and they can't do it anymore, right? Such fools we are sometimes. I mean, Jesus Christ would not waste time on it, okay? And we shouldn't either if we're his followers. And uh, Jesus has an attitude about music. Jesus has an attitude about sports. And I'm not, I don't think Jesus, I believe Jesus would have played ball with the boys in the street. I really do. But I don't think he would have went to the stadium. And maybe you have a different view of Jesus than I do. I don't think he did it. He could have. He didn't. Not that I'm aware of. I think Jesus would have wept at a gladiator fight. What do you think? You think Jesus would have loved the gladiator fight where someone was going to get killed? I don't think so. Lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. Do you have anyone like that in South Boston? That's, that's one of the signs Timothy, Paul gave to Timothy of the last days. Lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. Folks, the Jesus way is the opposite of that. First commandment, love the Lord thy God with all your heart, heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as thyself. That's the standard. Reliance on man. It's another one. Uh, Jesus didn't rely on man, not on the power of horses, not in the power of chariots. He relied on the power of his God. And... And not all that science has brought us is bad. Not all of man's efforts to help is bad. But I repeat something I said last night. The only one you can trust fully to do holistic healing, health for body, soul, and spirit, is God. And uh, wow. We live in an age where Science and education is exalted to the heights of heaven. And yes, we live longer. Yes, we have comforts that our great-grandparents knew nothing about. But I want to ask you morally and joy-wise, do you think people are better off today than they were 50 years ago? I don't think so. I think the very nature of our society drives people into loneliness and selfishness and, and pill abusers <laughs> in many, many cases, living by pills to function. And don't go away from here saying that I said that pills are always bad. I've taken a few along the way. But what I'm saying is, is that a lot of what man worships as professional and, and scientific and the best for man, they don't know what they're talking about. They're absolutely what God said about the last days, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. And the reason for that is they start from a premise of man and what man can do rather than starting from a premise of God and what God says. And so they get it absolutely backwards. <clears throat> Those who want to be like Christ carry their cross. The cross is not a wart on the end of your nose. I actually have one somewhere. Uh, don't look too hard. But, you know, it's not that. It's not... 
my knee that hurts sometimes. It's not your cancer if you have it. And I've had cancer. I'm not making fun of that. That's terrible stuff. But it's not that. That's not the cross. The cross is when you're faced with that cheese. And you know that Jesus Christ says, don't touch it. And in your heart, you want it. The cross is saying no to what you want and saying yes to what Jesus wants. That's what the cross was to Jesus. Jesus did not want to go to the cross. Did you know that? Yes, he looked forward to the joy he was going to have afterwards, but the actual fact of going there, he told his father, if it's possible, I don't want to do it. The only thing that saved him from sin and saved us as a result was those words, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done, and that's the cross. Whenever you and I come to that place and say, oh God, I I just wish I didn't have to do this. Nevertheless, not what I want, but what you want. There we've taken our cross, and we've died to ourselves. And said yes to Jesus Christ. That makes all the difference of the world. If you want to follow Jesus, you've got to do that. i got to do that. We come to those things in our life where we know what God's will is and we don't really care for it. And that might be going to Africa. I don't know. But whatever it is. And uh, we say, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. And we surrender the keys. Now... A lot of you probably have read Pablo Yoder's books, one or two or more of them. Any of you read Pablo Yoder's books? You know who I'm talking about? So when I first knew Pablo Yoder, he lived in Costa Rica. Now, Costa Rica isn't South Boston, but it's a pretty nice place. And he lived on a pretty nice little farm in an area that didn't have much violence at all. And he had a pretty nice life for Central America. Way, way back there, I would say about 1989. For some of you, that was when the world was pretty young. Um, I was teaching in a Bible school in El Salvador. And Pablo Yoder was there teaching. I'm running out of time, aren't I? Well, I'll tell you a couple of stories. Hang in there. It won't get real late. Um, we were teaching there in a the Bible school, and each night for the two-week Bible school, each night, Monday through Friday, we're having revival services, evangelistic more than revival. And the difference between that group and this group is that probably more than half of those people were unsaved. I don't know. I don't know what the figures were. It could well have been that only a quarter of the people there that were really right with God. Quite a few community people come in those night services who didn't know God. And we're preaching by turn. Uh, Different of the teachers and so forth would take a turn. Each of us preached about once a week. And we had the first week of meetings, and it seemed like nobody who should have responded to the gospel. And by the way, in those kind of cases, you should give invitations because a lot of unsaved people. And so we were giving invitations. No one was responding. We went all the way through the first week, nothing. Went into the second week. I don't remember who preached Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. But on Thursday, this was now the ninth, going to be the ninth evangelistic service that night. Pablo Yoder was to preach that night. And as he was seeking God for a blessing and for power to present the gospel to a lost people that night, God said, well, I have a question for you. This is my words, but this is more or less what happened. Will you give me, without reservation, your family? Will you offer your wife and children on the altar for me? Now, he was enough of a Christian to know that was not just a glib request. He went out along the fence row in the back of that property, and he wrestled with God about that. God, what does this mean? You know, what, can I do this? And before he got to the place to preach that night, he told God that he could have his wife and children for whatever he had for him. And uh, the rest you've read about in the books. He ended up in a very wicked, backwoods, hard-to-live-in area in Nicaragua, 
had his girls threatened with rape and his wife and many, many things, kidnapped and other things. God seen him through it. About maybe 30 or 35 people responded that night. Um, you see, when we give the keys of our life to Jesus, then we get something out of Jesus, see. Now, I went to a place, I went to a back country little town in, in Guatemala one time. I was to preach for a week evangelistic meetings. And me being me, I, I showed up there with like my shirt tail out, you know, hardly preparing, hardly having had time to prepare and just rushing in there. And I'm going to start meetings on a Monday night. And uh, I went to a prayer meeting. I appreciate your prayer meetings here. I went to a prayer meeting before the first service. And those people, those brethren, were they ever burdened with the souls of that community? I mean, they were praying and they were pleading with God. Some of them were shedding tears. They were agonizing for the people and the chills, literally. Chills started to go up and down my back when I heard brethren of a congregation pleading with God for the souls of men. So I was stationed in this little room out in the clinic building. And out there in that clinic building in a different room was a young, single VS young man. And uh, if I told him your name, you'd know him because he's used a fair amount as evangelist anymore today. But back then he was a single young man with some real struggle in his life come to me one day early on that week and he said I'm struggling with moral victory and I really want to do what's right but I can't seem to get on top of this thing he said I'm also struggling with the the standards of this mission now you had to know I was the director so he was just coming to me as it was okay so uh, I just talked a little while ago about standards well, we had, a, we had a policy. You're going to think we're crazy, but that's just the way it was. We had a policy back then, no instruments. And he just loved the guitar. In fact, he loved the guitar so much, he made himself a homemade one down there. I think he used, uh, among other things, fishing line. And it was on tune. Uh, but he knew that if he really wanted to be surrendered, see, since that was a standard, he should give up his guitar. So he said, I don't know whether I should go back home or whether I should give up my guitar. And, and he was just a very young man. And he was, he was honest. He was sincere. He was struggling with these things. And so we got together with the minister and other, And we were praying for the people of this town. And we were discussing. What do, what do we want to see God do here this week? <coughs> and he said. There's four men. There's four boys and men. In this village that I feel close to. That I'd really like to see respond. Four, and he named them who they were. He said, okay, we're going to pray for these four. We're going to trust God to bring these four to repentance this week. And we had a global figure then too, and I don't want to tell you what that was. But um, so we were praying. And then as we got into the week, I noticed he started to fast. I have a reason why I'm telling you this story, because it has something to do with Christ-likeness. But he started to fast, and... Uh, the lady of the house that he related to, the minister family there, she would invite him in for a meal, and he'd say no. He didn't go into the meal. All through one day and another day, and she invited him in. At one point, I heard him say this. He said, no, I'm doing an experiment. And the experiment was seeking God with all his heart. We, uh, we got down to Sunday afternoon which is going to be the last service of that week's series. And out of those four men that he wanted to see respond, three had responded. And I knew when we closed the invitation and the Sunday afternoon service, I knew that the fourth man had not responded. Now, I don't know how you would have felt about it, but that, that, was, such, that was just like a vice in my heart. That, God, we've been seeking you all week for these four souls, and three have responded, and one hasn't. But we got together with the people who had responded, 
And we're going to pray with them on the patio of the, of the pastor's house as we was getting ready to have that prayer meeting with those people. Man number four came and said, I want to get right with God too. I didn't tell you a fairy tale. That's real. And I believe the young man's experiment, he found his answer. He gave up his guitar for then. I think he has one today. It's all right. Where he's at, he can, he's allowed to have it. And uh, I believe he got on top of his moral life. And the souls he had a burden for got saved at that point. Now, I want to tell you what that has to do with a Christ-like life. Jesus was a man of zeal. He was willing to sacrifice sleep and comfort and work hard to see the causes of God accomplished. And I think if there's anything, any one thing that, that cuts us short with the power of Jesus Christ in our lives today, it's our lazy approach to Christianity. You think it over. But if we would pray more and if we would fast more and we would put more of a whole, whole heart into it, what could God do for us? But we like McDonald Christianity, right? Sit in your car, pull up to the machine, tell it what you want, get it two minutes later, and you can eat your food going down the road. That's the kind of, you know, something's efficient and fast and don't cost too much. But our brother mentioned old-fashioned revival. Well, you know what's something that's true about old-fashioned revival? Brother, it costs something. It costs praying into the night. It costs fasting. It costs surrender. It costs giving up a guitar if that's what it means. One more story and I'm going to close. One of the greatest missionary movements in the history of the world was the Moravian Mission. And there were two Moravian young men who wanted to witness to slave labor on an island. So I understand the story. And the only way the owners of that mine on that island and... Uh, the government of that island would allow those men to come was if they would if they would become slaves too. So they sold themselves as slaves, took the money they got for themselves, and paid their passage. And they went to the island to teach Jesus Christ to thousands of miners, not knowing if they could ever come back. And when they were on the boat getting ready to pull away from the harbor. Their families and loved ones was on the bank. And the one young man stepped to the edge of the ship and he raised his hand and said, May the Lord Jesus Christ receive the price of his sacrifice. In other words, he was going to do what he could to give back to Jesus Christ for what Jesus Christ had done for him. And I'm wondering tonight if the one who did all for us has our heart in such a way that we could truly sing that song that says, take my life and let it be consecrated all for thee. Because in a concluding statement tonight, and I hope you remember this, not because I said it, but I really believe it's true. To the degree that you and I can become Christ-like in our lifestyle, to that degree, the dynamics of the eternal life of Jesus Christ can be ours. The vitality, the richness, the God-honoring aspects of it, the more you and I can live like Jesus Christ, the more we shall know of those fountains, those rivers of living water. And I have to tell you tonight that I'm almost ashamed to make that statement because I fall so far short of it yet. 
But I can honestly say that's the desire of my heart, to follow Jesus with an honest way so that the dynamics of his life can flow out of mine. I'm not going to give an invitation again tonight. I would only invite you to do this. Go home and before you sleep tonight, ask God, God, is there something that I've made dear to me that grieves you? Is there something that I don't want to give up that grieves you? Is there something that causes me to lose blessing? That if I would just say, yes, Lord, the blessing would be there. If you can answer that honestly tonight, I think this service will be worth it. Let's have a closing song.